Hello, welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Trevor Polichuk, co-portfolio manager of the Worldwide Healthcare Trust. Dr. Polichuk is a partner on the public equity team focused on the global pharmaceutical industry. Previously, he worked at Lehman Brothers as a senior research analyst covering the US pharmaceutical industry, having begun his career at Warner Lambert as a member of the pharmaceutical global marketing planning team. He holds a doctorate in neuropharmacology and gross human anatomy and an MBA from Queen's University of Canada. So if we could start at the beginning then, the Worldwide Healthcare Trust, uh, what would you say the objectives and investment style of the trust? Sure, that's a, that's a great, great question. Investing in, in healthcare and in particular therapeutics can be a highly idiosyncratic result. You know, so at OrbiMed, we've really brought together a collection of, of healthcare investment professionals. We have MDs, PhDs like myself, industry experts. Uh, and we all work together uh, to achieve our collective goal with Worldwide Healthcare Trust is, is really capital growth by investing in uh, across all cap structures, across all healthcare subsectors, we really pursue innovation as our key focus within the trust. We focus on growth. We try to identify mispriced assets and really try and run a concentrated portfolio so we can make our best ideas count uh, as most as we can. You know, and one thing that we do try to do is, is uh, which is, might be a little bit unusual, we do try and offer UK investors a smart alternative to simply investing in Astra or Glaxo to get their healthcare exposure. So that, that's kind of how we think about the trust. Oh, that's interesting. So, so how does, uh, in terms of the trust itself, what does the geographical allocation and indeed sector breakdown tend to look like? Right, right. You know, that's another good question. They kind of go hand in hand for us. I mean, first and foremost, we're a global fund. We invest across the US, Europe, Japan, China, India, et cetera. Uh, we do have an important overweight in biotechnology stocks, especially SMIDCAP names. And quite frankly, the preponderance of those are located in the U.S. And this is also partially true of some of the other subsectors that we invest in, most notably managed care life science tools. So as a result, Richard, about two-thirds of the portfolio is in the U.S., um, I would highlight emerging markets, especially China, as, as something noteworthy uh, from a geographic uh, investment point of view. There's been a very dynamic shift there over the past five years in China. Obviously, the positive uh, and shifting demographics, increasing healthcare consumption there, uh, lots of new clinical regulations that help foster healthcare consumption, relaxed uh, listing rules on some of the local exchanges there, um, increased innovation domestically in China, and a lot of formalized government support for the biotech industry. You know, so in emerging markets right now, we're just under 20% of the portfolio, but I would note that the benchmark that we're compared against is effectively 0%. Uh, Japan has been strategic for us in the past. The weighting there varies from low single digits to low double digits. Uh, and then effectively the rest is, is, is mostly Europe. Okay. And j just to um, remind us and bring us back up to speed, what, what is the actual difference 
because they're, they're, they are almost mentioned interchangeably sometimes, although clearly they're not. What's the actual difference between biotechnology as opposed to traditional pharmaceutical companies? Well, th- that's a very important question because the lines between pharmaceuticals and biotechnology are continuing to get blurred and, and they're almost completely obfuscated now, especially as we go up in, in the market cap range. You know, when we think about a bio- biotechnology stock, traditionally, they were focused on biologics. These are large proteins, antibodies, injectable type medicines used primarily in specialty care. Whereas historically, pharmaceutical companies, when we think about oral drugs, small molecule drugs, these were primarily for primary care medicines, um, you know, that your, that your family doctor would give to you. But there's been so much innovation in the space over the past decade, especially due to the genomics revolution, that everyone, every company in healthcare is effectively involved in biologics today. So I, I think the term we like to use now is, is biopharmaceutical company, as it blends both biotech and pharmaceuticals. And basically, all the companies in the space now um, are doing both. You know, at the lower end of the market cap range, say below $5 billion, but even particular below $1 billion, we like to use an even different term, Richard, which is emerging biotechnology companies. These are companies with no revenues, no profits, but a, possess a platform technology or, or maybe a single compound in clinical development that can generate tremendous value as they progress that single compound through clinical trials. And the potential of the drug candidate becomes more apparent over time as we go through the clinical trial process. And this group of companies is also a strategic overweight in the trust for us. I think that might partly uh, lead into my next question, which is that there seems to have been a a number of merger and acquisition uh, transactions more recently, particularly more high value, I guess. Is M&A important in the sector? And, and if so, what, why would that be? Right, right. You know, M&A is definitely a constant in healthcare over a long period of time. You know, there can be some ebb and flow to it or even some cyclicality to it. And we certainly saw that in the first half of last year, you know, when the pandemic really started to, to get going uh, in March, April. Um, we saw the number of M&A transactions decline precipitously. Uh, but the number of deals inflected as we got into the second half of the year, and we certainly expect that trend to continue into 2021. The question is, well, why, why do we think that? There is an incredible amount of life science that goes on in the world, not only in the industry, but also in academia, across government institutions. And what has become very clear, there's no one single company that can do it by themselves. They just don't have the full access to emerging technologies or science or all the innovation that's going on. So no one can cover it all. And of course, and maybe this is the key driving force, there's constant pressure on the big companies to replenish their pipelines. Um, as their marketed products lose patent protection, they need to backfill constantly. These large cap companies, Richard, they're always striving for that next big thing. Uh, and they focus on those emerging biotech companies who are very often the 
cradle of innovation that I that I mentioned earlier. So, so bearing that specialization in mind, um, how would you say that the sector has been performing um, throughout the pandemic, especially last year? I, I'm guessing that there's been uh, perhaps even accelerated innovation during that time. Well, certainly. And, and, and if, you know, as I think about that question, Richard, you know, there's kind of two ways to answer that. One is, you know, how do these companies fare during, um, you know, ongoing business and operations for manufacturing and clinical trials. And then the, the other is what you're referring to. I think the, the overall industry's response to COVID-19 and what do we learn there? So I think on the former, uh, and this became very clear in the early days of the pandemic, the industry has been incredibly resilient. Little to no supply chain issues, little to no manufacturing issues, little to no demand issues. Um, it's It's almost been business as normal for these companies. And that that's important to identify as, as an investor in this space. I mean, clearly there's been some headwinds. You know, some patients have been trouble getting to doctors to start treatments. Um, but, you know, but in some cases that's been offset by the fact that there's a lot of been prescription drug hoarding, if you will, for patients with chronic conditions or about medicines for a long time. They've been stockpiling their medicines. So, you know, sales of some chronic drugs have been better than expected. But overall, I think it's almost business as usual for these companies. On that latter point and the company's response to COVID-19, you know, I've been involved in this space for nearly 25 years, Richard. And it's incredible even to me what the industry has done in response to this global pandemic. Uh, It's amazing that the industry could discover, develop, test, and get approved both multiple vaccines so far, multiple treatments for a disease that didn't even exist a year ago. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, and I cannot think of a better hallmark for innovation than that, as you alluded to. So, yes, the innovation inflection has been real and it's been substantial. Um, and, and in fact, I'd be remiss not to mention a few other things that happened, let's say, for example, in the diagnostic space. We've had over 300 approved tests for testing for both the presence of the virus uh, or the presence of antibodies in patients who've been previously infected. Um, and that's an incredible statement, you know, as, of course, testing has become basically the number one line of defense for governments around the world in fighting this pandemic. Uh, you know, otherwise, the whole phenomenon of innovation, whether it be for COVID, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, even Alzheimer's disease we might have news on this year, is as good as it's ever been in the therapeutic space. And, and really, Richard, this underscores our bullishness for the sector going forward. Is it too much to ask, do you think, to expect this level and rate of innovation uh, to continue? Or has the pandemic simply uh, brought into sharp focus something that was starting to pick up anyway? Well, that's another great question, you know, and I get asked that question a lot. You know, if I use an American baseball analogy, what inning are we in um, in, in in this inflection point of innovation? I really think we're in the early innings. I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, the genomics revolution really started to occur sort of 2000 through 2010. And during that time, attrition actually increased. There was more failure in the space than there was increased drug development because there was just something uh, about the science that was too new. 
But the industry has finally caught up over the last 10 years. And I think just now we're starting to really enjoy the fruits of that genomic revolution and the inflection, I think, will continue going forward. So I think we're still in the early innings, maybe early, uh, maybe inning three of a nine inning game in terms of the innovation cycle that we're in. Um, now, turning to the trust itself, could you possibly talk us through one or two of your top holdings, perhaps, and uh, the reasons that they particularly appeal to you at the moment? Okay, sure, sure. So let, let me give you uh, maybe a couple of different ideas from different sectors uh, and from different market caps. Um, there's one company called Merck, and there's two Mercks in the world, so just the listeners understand I'm talking about the U.S. Merck, um, and this is one of the companies that is a top holding in the portfolio. And really, it comes down to the fact that they are leaders in a relatively new field called immuno-oncology. And this field is, is uh, the use of a special drug. In this case, it's an antibody. But in this case, these antibodies are used to help your own bodies, your own immune system, fight off and kill cancer cells. You know, it's really a very simple concept, but it took decades to come up with this breakthrough. And I think over the past five years, we've seen a real revolution in the treatment of cancer, thanks to these types of therapies pioneered by my, by Merck. Um, like I said, Merck is leading the way here, and they have a drug called Keytruda. And it's been approved now for 17 different tumor types around the world. And it's really incredible. You know, not only does this drug prolong patients' lives like no drug before, but it also offers a chance for a cure in some patients. And that's something I, I couldn't have talked about, you know, five years ago. And it's really unheard of for any cancer therapy. But this is the type of things that the, the industry is now producing is the potential for a cure for otherwise a de deadly disease like cancer. And the company is undergoing a an impressive inflection in revenues and earnings that I think has the, uh, the potential to, to inflect um, the share price as well. Another important holding for us uh, is, is, is something completely different, quite frankly, uh, but it's a company called Natera. Um, this is a really up-and-coming uh, diagnostics company, Richard, uh, that's totally under the radar screen. I think everyone's heard of a company like Merck, but Natera, their base business effectively is a non-invasive prenatal test. So for pregnant women having a baby, it's a simple blood draw that allows pregnant mothers to find out early on if they have any genetic disorders that the baby might have. And, uh, you know, obviously, I think that's top of mind for any expecting parent. But there's been a big shift, a massive tailwind in that business is that the professional guidelines here have recently endorsed testing to be done, not only for women in high-risk pregnancies, but on all pregnancies. And so it's suddenly a huge opportunity for a company like Natera. But more excitingly, this Natera technology that's used uh, in the prenatal sense can be used for finding fragments of DNA in the blood and apply it to cancer screening. So it's a huge new window of opportunity. So they're launching another simple blood draw test um, for patients who have undergone surgery for cancer treatments, which allows doctors to detect months ahead of time whether that cancer is going to recur or not, which lets them intervene and treat the recurrence earlier or more effectively, or if the recurrence is not happening. Um, and it allows patients to avoid unnecessary treatments like chemo or things like that. 
So it's incredible uh, piece of technology that I think can alter the course of cancer treatment uh, and patient survival for 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 decades to come. Extraordinary. Obviously, from a, a broader perspective, we've had um, in market terms, let alone in social terms, quite a year in two, in 2020 and, and various sectors have somewhat uh, been under the cosh. How have you found that your trust has been coping uh, throughout the pandemic? And indeed, has it actually thrown out any opportunities for you? Right. Yeah. Another great question. And I appreciate I appreciate the question because I would say not only have we coped, first of all, just organizationally, uh, but I would say we've thrived during this period. The, 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 the organization, the trust, we haven't slowed down whatsoever during this work from home environment. Our, our due diligence efforts are as sharp as ever. Um, you know, and from a trust perspective and a performance perspective, yes, the downturn did provide some really significant opportunities from an investment perspective that, you know, we haven't seen in, in decades, you know, that, that March drawdown in the early days of the pandemic was, was historic. And it was reminiscent of, of the Great Depression. You know, you can recall that severe market volatility, you know, the swings in the Dow. For example, we're incredible, 1,000, 2,000 points in a single day. But we tried to take advantage of many of those dislocations during that time and really try and focus our best ideas within the trust. And the playbook, I think, that we put into place at that time was the real catalyst for outperformance for the rest of the year. And I'm very uh, proud of our performance um, for the calendar year of 2020. The trust returned 20% on an NAV basis, which was nearly double the benchmark. And the fiscal year to date, because we do have a March fiscal year, the trust has returned nearly 30%, Richard, which it represents double-digit excess performance over the benchmark for the fiscal year. Uh, so we're very proud of the numbers we've been able to put on the board in, in what was a, a very difficult and stressful time but otherwise a very good year for markets in general. A striking performance indeed. Um, unfortunately, that's um, all we've got time for. So I have to say many thanks again for your time, Trevor, and for those very valuable insights. Um, that was Dr. Trevor Polischuk of the Worldwide Healthcare Trust. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now. <laughs>